You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today, my guest is Eric Sliz, a professional law enforcement and criminal investigator who has, through the years, engaged in a broad range of law enforcement and criminal investigations for almost three decades. And more recently, he's worked as a private investigator, uh, focusing on insurance fraud. To say that Rick has a wealth of experience would be putting it mildly. Um, I'm very pleased to have you as my guest. Welcome to the Business Hour, Rick. Good morning, Rob. Now, Rick, um, l- let's start off and uh, and go through, um, rather than you and I had chatted, and, and rather than uh, sort of characterizing the magnitude of the, the, the current uh, insurance fraud um, condition, we'll save that for just a little bit later. And what I'd like to do, because you have such an extensive history in criminal justice is to talk a little bit about you and your background and uh, we'll drill down way back to when you began your career in law enforcement and then we might even drill down a little bit further but let's start off with how you actually began the path um, in the direction of becoming a professional uh law enforcement officer, which led to criminal investigations? Well, uh, I guess initially my first real law enforcement position was back in the uh, early 80s with the city of St. Petersburg Beach. And I had an occasion to, or an opportunity, shall we say, to actually uh, get a sponsorship into the local community college, which at that time was responsible for providing the necessary police academy training. And it by getting sponsored to a local police department by a chief, uh, you were responsible for paying your own bills, which I gladly did because I graduated from Florida State at a time when, where I lived in Florida, the departments weren't hiring. And so when the opportunity arose to uh, take the, to get a sponsorship, I gladly went forward and took the training, and about, I was sponsored through the city of St. Petersburg Beach, and when I got out of the academy, they offered me a job as a, full, as a full-time reserve officer, which meant they provided you with all the equipment that you needed, gave you one uniform, and, uh, and of course, a gun, and gave you $10 a month to handle the dry cleaning costs, but you were a sworn peace officer, you worked the streets, you worked your investigations, you made your arrests, you investigated all kinds of crimes, and shortly thereafter they offered me a full-time position as one of the regular officers, and I worked there for about, I'd say, nine additional months after that. So you you began uh, in the uh, community college program, Uh, you were sponsored, you began studying criminal justice, and you transferred to Florida State University where you continued on in the uh, criminal uh, justice program? Well, no, not exactly. At the time that I went to work for St. Pete Beach or went to the academy, I'd already obtained my degree. Um, my interest in law enforcement, however, started uh, way before that. Um, 
if you allow me to expound on that. Yeah, in fact, you and I had uh, chatted about it. I thought it was very interesting that, uh, was this in high school that you were in a uh, an Explorer program? Yes, sir, it was. And actually, the interest was, it actually came up even earlier than that. Uh, I guess every young boy grows up with hopefully some friends in the neighborhood and we all get together and we, you know, play the sports of football, baseball, basketball, whatever, but then you also have your games of Army and Cowboys and Indians and Cops and Robbers. And I knew at a very early age that this is what I wanted to do because every time we played Cops and Robbers, I was always the Cops. Uh, up to and including, and I'm sure some of your listeners can relate, uh, taking playing cards and attaching them to the frame of your bicycle so they would flatten the wheels to make it sound like a motorcycle. Uh, l- let me stop you there uh, for a moment or, and, and ask you, did you actually have a sense when you were playing the part of the cop in Cops and Robbers that I want to do this, this is what I want to do, and this is why I'm playing this role now because it's what I'm going to do? Oh, without a doubt. It, it was, and I, I hate to sound stereotypical, but it, it was a calling. You know, you, you, you talk to your religious leaders and, and, and executives, and they all say, you know, I had this, this calling to do what I do today. This, in my case, was an absolute calling. I knew at very early age, again, playing games, this is what I wanted to do. I emulated the officer. I, I dressed up the family car. It, it was an absolute I, – I knew nothing else. I did not want to be a, a medical professional. I didn't want to be – banking professional, nothing against those occupations. I knew that this is what I wanted to do, and as you mentioned, as an explorer, Scott, I had an opportunity to join a police explorer post with the city police department and did was a member for about three years while I was in between junior high school and high school. And this is where I got my first real ex- exposure to what the job was all about. It's uh, almost uh, as if the altar boy uh, entered the priesthood, uh, in a sense. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I know some, I've, I've told people that story, and they all kind of look at, me, look at you and go, you know, really, is that really how you got started? Yeah, it is. It, it's truthfully so. It, it, it drew me to it, and I got in the Explorer Post where we rode with the officers and, and got exposed to different kinds of situations. And luckily for me, the standard with the post was if they got into a dangerous call situation they were supposed to drop us off in a safe well-lit area and they would come back and pick us up and then the three years that i was a member only got dropped off one time and that was the officer was responding to a domestic call which statistically is where most officers uh get injured uh and he didn't know what to do and i had to uh tell him that he was supposed to drop me off which he did and he came back and he apologized and you know i being young being young and wanting to obey the rules i said look it's what we're supposed to do no harm no foul but it was a it was a good time where i did get the exposure and actually fan the fires if you will well my interest of uh, law enforcement it sounds like um you were dropped off uh, on that occasion uh, to to stay safe but that you got exposed to a lot of other uh, encounters, we'll say, uh, riding with uh, the patrol officer or officers. And uh, that, to me, sounds uh, almost like informal training, if you will. Uh, your, your exposure 
to what they were doing literally on the ground um, and on patrol must have been really uh, very influential and, and really helpful to you, I would imagine. It, it was. It, it, it opened my eyes as to what the job was all about and potentially what it could be all about. If if you were in the uh, human resources department of a uh, of a police department, um, would you recommend that that police department have uh, sponsorship or access to uh, a program that, in turn, would give access to um, high school students so that they could get similar exposure? Was it that good? Oh, certainly, and it and it also. Uh, there were guys that were in my post that actually, when they got out of high school, went to work for the police department. And it was good because they were already known, and their good points and bad points, their idiosyncrasies. And uh, I could think of two or three guys that were in my post that went on to uh, spend numerous years of their entire careers with that city police department. And I would highly recommend it if the department has a place for it because it can be a major undertaking for the department personnel. Again, you're dealing with younger individuals, and their values are different than adults, and you have to, while you're out there, to try to teach them and show them all about the job and encourage them to perhaps further their interests. You also have to be mindful of the fact that they, you have to keep them interested and entertain them, if you will, and, and, and you know hold their interest in it because... You know, they're they're not really sure what they want to do, but again, you take the chance, and you 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 may be able to spark a genuine interest in it. Now, the um, the criminal justice program um, has a, a range of courses, and we have young people that uh, tune in, and to a large extent, this this program helps them form a, a better impression of what a given profession is like and also they learn about the kinds of things they can do in advance of pursuing a career which either tells them uh that a a a career uh is something worth pursuing or not and i'm wondering what kind of courses uh did you take uh in the criminal justice program when you were a student primarily the classes that i that i took were of foundational value, and by that I mean it was it was it was all theory, theory of crimes, theories of of why people commit crimes, theories of of who the people are that commit the crimes, and we also looked at the um, area of corrections, which is an entire different animal in its own right compared to policing. It's the police officers that go out and the deputy sheriffs that go out and and wrangle in the criminals, and then they turn them over to corrections, and they have to figure out what they're going to do with them. And then there's the area of the courts. How do the courts handle certain types of certain types of cases? What sort of penalties do they meet out for certain kinds of crimes? So it, it, it was more of a foundational value uh, to see the theories behind each area of uh, public safety, or, or in this case, law enforcement. Yeah, it sounds like uh, you uh, had a a course. Uh, uh, curriculum uh, that uh, looked at the social science of crime, which to me would be ultimately pretty valuable, uh, particularly in this day and age. Um, you'd like to think that uh, all law enforcement had uh, 
uh, a background uh, in in what it is that makes uh, criminals criminals, and uh, and then uh, to talk about uh, the correction systems and the court systems that 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 broader spectrum of the jurisprudence uh, uh, system and the process it, it would seem to come into play. Uh, because later on, uh, as a special investigator in the district attorney's office, uh, I would imagine that more of that theory um, was something you experienced in practice. But before we touch on that, um, you went from uh, the St. Petersburg uh, Police Department to the Atlanta City Police Department, is that correct? Yes, sir, that is. And, and 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 tell us how that came about. Is that just uh, one of those uh, career moves where uh, you um, were looking to advance and Atlanta was a place where you could advance? Uh, was it friends or family, um, which is a big reason that many people move to a new city, and then the natural thing to do was to apply to uh, the big police department? Uh, how did that come about? Well, the city of St. Pete Beach um, was a small 27-man department, including the chief. We covered five and a half square miles. And it, it was just too small for my tastes. It wasn't, it wasn't inner city enough. Um, my interest in coming up to Atlanta was based on several factors. Uh, my brother and sister had gone to college in Atlanta. So I had been up you know, in, in travels with the family to see them several times. And I remember coming up 7585 northbound, no less, and seeing a uh, aerial truck, fire truck, going to a call, going from an on-ramp southbound. And I thought to myself, this has got to be the best place to do what I wanted to do, a city police department, a major city police department with major city crime, major city challenges. Uh, at that time, full strength was 1,300 people. Uh, now it's over 2,000. Uh, but it, 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 the thought of working in a big city and, again, becoming a number. In my case, it was badge 3545. That's the number I was known by, not by E.P. Sliz, but it was badge number 3545 that went on all my reports in addition to my name. But that's who I became to be known as. It, uh, uh, go the, ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, the opportunity to police in a, in a big city with big city problems and big city challenges just was absolutely amazing yeah it sounds like uh an ideal transition for you and um we're going to take a break here um eric and when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about your uh your time with the atlanta police department and what you uh, what you learned and what you were exposed to we're here with eric sliz who has a broad background in law enforcement and we'll talk more with mr sliz when we come back this is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. 
During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peace Tree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Michael Gannot with the Middle East Research Center Limited, bringing you insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Eric Sliz, a lifelong professional law enforcement police officer, uh, special investigator, and more recently a insurance fraud investigator. And we've been talking about Rick's career in law enforcement. And uh, in the beginning segment, we talked about Rick's uh, introduction to professional law enforcement in St. Petersburg and, and then making the transition uh, to the Atlanta Police Department, which was truly a, a big step. There could have been a small, a smaller city, uh, in between St. Petersburg, uh, and Atlanta, but, uh, you went from the 27 person St. Pete, uh, Police Department to the 2,000 person, uh, uh, Police Department. Is, is that correct, Rick? You said it was 2,000 people when you got here? Actually, it was, it was thirteen hundred. Thirteen hundred. Okay. Yeah. Uh, currently, they're they're over two thousand in strength, which is quite quite the undertaking. That's the number that I had uh, seized on. Yes, and 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 so that was a a a a big 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 difference. You probably did go from being Officer Schliz to uh, three five four five, as you pointed out uh, before the break. Um, what was it like? What was your initial impression on the job? And and did they? Uh, engage you in additional training or were you already somewhat of a seasoned police officer and it was more on the job training the, when i when i got into my fto training after about 20 weeks at the police academy which they stress physical fitness and driver training and weapons handling and i can remember getting into my fto training that being a field training officer which is usually a seasoned officer that takes you and and, and, and leads you. <laughs> he, he puts you in the middle of things, but at the same time, he doesn't let you make mistakes. I can recall being absolutely overwhelmed just being out there at night, you know, talking to different kinds of folks, working different kinds of calls. Um, I, I remember distinctly my FTO when I got into uh, Zone 2 
on the morning watch, which at that time was 11 at night to 7 in the morning. My FTO told me where he kept his extra weapon in the car, which happened to be a uh, Grand Fury Plymouth 3, which is the big, huge car. I know that car well because that was the car that I learned to drive in. That was <laughs> There you go. And you, so you know that the overall size was just immense. That's right. And I can remember him telling me, he showed me where he kept his, his 2-inch 38 in the ashtray. He said, there's just one thing I want you to remember. If I'm in there getting my my posterior whipped, you better jump in and help. And, and, and help protect me. <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid not help him, but help me out. He says, here's where I keep my extra weapon. If it comes to a down to where you have to, you know, take a chance and use deadly force, you better do it because when I survive, and I will survive, I'm going to come back and <laughs> give you something you can richly deserve. Now, was Zone 2... Uh, a, uh, a heavy crime uh, zone? Was this a baptismal uh, under fire? Uh, you were uh, thrown into the thick of it? Was uh, was it an urban zone? Oh, yeah. It, well, inner city zone. Was, uh, zone 2 at that time was the Ponce de Leon area, um, Northside Drive, uh, all the way out to the DeKalb, uh, DeKalb County line. Drug, sex, uh, and rock and roll. Uh yeah, exactly. And and there, none of the zones at the time were any, well, I can't say that. All the zones had their idiosyncrasies. Uh, Ponce Leon was hot with drug dealers and prostitutes. Uh, zone 3, where I spent three and a half years on the morning watch and evening watch, which is 3 to 11, uh, was known for the housing projects and the associated crimes in those housing projects, the, the vicious crimes, the shootings, the stabbings. All the zones had a certain percentage of those, but Zone 3 was particularly well-known for that sort of thing. It had had the nickname of Little Vietnam uh, when I got assigned to there as my final assignment. But yes, it was baptism by fire, because I I never actually worked in Zone 3 as a field tra- with a field training officer, but I worked in Zone 5, which is the downtown area, and we had our share of, of uh interesting calls. Uh, work Zone 4, which was southwest Atlanta. That was a little quieter. And then Zone 1 was a hotbed because you had Bankhead Highway. Uh, but yes, it, it was it was quite interesting. And and tell us a little bit more about the kinds of, of crime. You mentioned uh, drugs and prostitution uh, in Zone 2, and you mentioned violent crime that you saw in, in Zone 3. Um, what were the kinds of uh, crimes that you were exposed to most frequently or that you were involved in? Uh, and tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what a, uh, not so much a typical day, but maybe give us an example of a, of a, of a, of a few incidents that uh, um, you'll probably always remember. Well, actually, one such experience occurred on the last night of my field training. Uh, I'd never been allowed to drive. I always rode with my FTOs. And this was particularly in Zone 2, not the other zones. And the last night, um, one of the other officers in Zone 2, we call it, jumped a stolen car, and a chase ensued. And back in the 80s, their chase policy was rather liberal. And so we were, you know, one bad guy and nine police cars, and I happened to 
my sergeant came to me before we went on the street and said, have you asked me if I had ever driven? I told him no, and he threw me the keys to his car and said, you're driving me for the duration of the shift. And so shortly thereafter, we got on the street, the chase ensued, and then we were ninth in position. And he kept in, you know, in, in, the, in the stack following the bad guy. And it took us over Hillendales. We went to Piedmont Park. I remember there was a old boat fiberglassing plant, and we actually, the perp actually crashed the gates. Of course, you know, we're not going to let him go. Uh, we went through the gates, and at one point, my sergeant stopped the car, and he said, change positions, and he got behind the wheel, and we wound up being second in the stack because he was a much better driver, more experienced driver. And we wound up getting the guy, we chased him into DeKalb County, and the state patrol got involved, uh, DeKalb County got involved, and uh, we wound up getting the perp. And he went to jail, and that's, that's the end of that story. Would you say that was one of the uh, the first uh, experiences where your adrenaline was really flowing on the job? Oh, yeah. I had many such experiences, but that was one of the ones that really stuck out in my mind because, again, I was driving the sergeant around looking forward to a nice, quiet night, my final night of FTO, before my assignment to Zone 3, and all of a sudden, you know, this happens, and it all, it, it just, uh, you know, it was an adrenaline pumping, pumping experience, no doubt. What would you What would you say um, the greatest takeaway uh, experience wise? Not 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 a a, uh, a major incident, but the, the overall takeaway before you left the Atlanta Police Department. And and by the way, did did you, were you working in the the district attorney's office during the time you were with? Uh, the Atlanta Police Department, or that come later with the Fulton County uh, uh, Sheriff's Department? That came later. I, I left the city of Atlanta to go to the Fulton County Police Department, and then from there I transferred down to the district attorney's office. Okay, so what would you say the, uh, the, 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 the major takeaway was from your experience with the Atlanta Police Department? Did you, did you feel like you got exposed to such a broad range of crime that you were pretty much a seasoned, savvy uh, policeman by the time you left? You know, you never really get totally seasoned with this job because depending on where you work, it's a different type of seasoning. What I, In answering your question, what I took away mostly from the city of Atlanta is uh, six months out of the academy, I was assigned to a beat, beat 310. And it had nine housing projects on it. And the officer that had it before me was actually in my academy class, and he chose to get out of the profession, go back up to Tennessee, and take over the family fencing and landscape business. And I can remember my lieutenant calling me to the old Kroger store on Moreland Avenue and telling me that I was going to be given this beat as my regular assignment. And I looked at him and I said, at that time I had about a year I've been in the academy for six months, and I had almost a year in Florida, so a year, year and a half. And I looked at him, and I said, no, I'm not ready for this. And he looked at me, and he said, you are, you will, and you are going to. And I took it over. And what I came away from by working with the city of Atlanta is, is I got a good exposure as to what kind of, what kind of crimes one person will commit against another, first of all. I, I mean, I... I saw stabbing victims, shooting victims, homicide victims, domestic violence victims. Uh, I worked the housing projects, and 
and met a variety of folks. And the majority of the people in those housing projects, and again, they sometimes they get a stigma because they live in, in government-sponsored housing. But I met a lot of hardworking individuals that simply needed a hand up, uh, simply needed some assistance because they there wasn't a father or a mother in the picture, or you know there, there there were multiple children, or for some reason they needed help. The majority of the folks were hardworking individuals. They had jobs. They went to work every day. They took care of their kids. They made sure their children got education. Uh, I can remember an older gentleman that worked for the city sanitation department, but he actually swept a parking lot in front of a club on Prior Road on the weekends. But he had grown up in the neighborhood, in Carver Homes, which is one of the major housing projects that used to be in existence. Grew up in Carver Homes, raised his family to a point where he could get out and buy a house and get him out of that environment. But overall... I came to realize that there are some good people in there, in those in those areas of residential areas. It's, it sounds and, like you, you you got exposed to a uh, a broad range of uh, uh, the good, the bad, and the and the ugly, if you will. Rick, Rick we're going to be taking a break here. When we come back, we'll we'll make that transition for the Atlanta Police Department to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office and to your time with the District Attorney's Office. We're here with uh, professional law enforcement, uh, criminal justice, uh, career professional uh, Eric Sliz. We'll be back with Eric right after this break. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. I'm Marita News, and I would like to invite you to listen live or download my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around health care, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us Friday at 11 o'clock. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And we've been talking with Eric Sliz, a career Law enforcement officer, special investigator, um, currently an insurance fraud investigator, but but someone who's had uh, almost three decades of law enforcement experience, and we we've been talking about his experience and his evolution from uh, the time that he was with the St. Petersburg Police Department to the uh, time he spent with the Atlanta Police Department and some of his experiences there, and. And tell us about the transition to the Fulton County Sheriff's Department, and 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 why would you make a transition from 
uh, a a city police department to a county uh, sheriff's department that essentially uh, encompassed the city of Atlanta. Uh, what were the circumstances around uh, deciding that you would make that transition? Well, I, I got to a point, I guess, in my in my stay with the city of Atlanta that I wanted to do something a little different, and Fulton County offered me that opportunity to, I guess at the time, as we all know how important money can be, it was a little bit more money, and it seemed to offer a chance for a quicker promotion and to try out different things. I mean, essentially, you did the same thing that most people in the corporate, you know, private sector do, which is seek uh, an opportunity uh, f- for a better pay and 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 for um, upward mobility. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and, and in a lot of ways, it, it was a good experience. It. it broadened the spectrum of my experience as a police officer. Did you go to work uh, as a special investigator with the district attorney's office soon thereafter, immediately uh, when you arrived at the Fulton County Sheriff's Department, or did that come later? It came six years later. Oh, six Uh, years later. Six years later, yeah. I spent six years with the Fulton County Police Department, actually uh, made corporal and uh, was hoping to get moved to the uh, Criminal Investigations Division. And I actually got a call from a good friend of mine that I had worked with in Atlanta, and he told me about a position that had come open with the DA's office. And, and it, it, was, it actually it, it happened so fast, because I can remember uh, having just gotten in from working a side job, part-time job, gotten in about 7 o'clock that morning, and at 8.15 I got a call from this friend of mine, and said, put on your best suit, grab a copy of your resume, you have an appointment at 10 o'clock with the chief investigator. And throughout the years with the county police department, I had been talking to him because we always went down to court in Fulton in Atlanta. And I'd been seeing him from time to time and asking, you know, what goes on with the DA's office? You know, how do they do their job? What do they do as part of their job? And who would I need to talk to? Because I had aspirations of getting into investigations. And sure enough, he called me one day, and I, I got up, got ready, got my suit on, and, of course, I was 15 minutes late, which uh, didn't really impress the chief investigator because he had already left. But the assistant chief investigator came lumbering in and sat me down in his office and, as a very, as very matter-of-factly, said, this is what we are, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is what we get paid. Uh, we don't get this, we don't get this, but we get this, and we get this. And asked me if I had any questions, and I asked a couple of questions, as I recall, and he shook my hand and said, we'll be back in touch. And the rest is history. They called me back within two weeks and offered me a position that wound up being one of the most challenging jobs I had in my career. It it sounds to me like your reputation must have preceded you uh, and that they knew that you were at least somewhat to uh, very qualified and uh, uh, that they didn't need to uh, quiz you too hard on uh, what you knew and why you might be qualified for the job. Um, Did you get um, formal investigations training uh, upon commencing with this new position? They did send me to a couple of classes down at the State Police Academy, but 
when I had the first day I started, I, the chief investigator called me in and tossed me a handful of files. As I recall, it was about 15 files. And at the time, we were working cases up for indictment. And by that, I mean we pull in all the evidence, we get all the police reports, we find all the witnesses and victims, and we would then go in with the assistant DA and testify before the grand jury and obtain the indictments if the grand jury saw, saw that there was enough reason to. And, you know, from there I progressed to working cases up for trial with the assistant DAs, which again was locating and subpoenaing witnesses and victims, uh, pulling together all the evidence in the crime lab and going out to the scene and taking photographs, whatever the assistant DAs needed to be done. What? And, and, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, Can, please continue. Well, I, there, I was going to ask you what uh, what falls under the umbrella of the kinds of uh, investigations that the special investigators in a in a county uh, district attorney's office uh, uh, look into. Is it everything like, under the sun? Everything under the sun. I worked everything from white collar crime, uh, such as the case with um, AT and T that involved forgery, where one of their employees had forged numerous documents and uh, used a company credit card to make personal purchases and then attempted to write them off with um, vouchers and payment forms uh, to double homicides, uh, arson homicide, one of which that um, took about seven years to get fully prosecuted. Uh, It was a complicated case because two children were unfortunately lost their lives in a fire that was uh, started by a member of a gang in retaliation for uh, bullying, what would be now called bullying, of another member of the gang. And when he was sent over to make things right with the person that did the bullying, he wound up constructing seven different Molotov cocktails and threw one of them up, tried to make it through the window, I guess as a warning, and it was an older complex on Cooper Street as I recall, and the first one hit the side of the apartment complex wall and crashed and, and rained down fire, and then he threw the second one, which went through the window, and into the kitchen. There were wooden floors in the apartment, which had been heavily varnished over the years. It caught the floor on fire. The uh, 18-month-old was asleep in one of the bedrooms under the covers because it was wintertime, and the 4-year-old was actually in the restroom. And the fire spread so quickly, it totally engulfed the apartment. The adults got out, but the children didn't. And it had such a devastating effect on the emergency personnel that responded, uh, the firefighters and the medics from Grady, that one of the firefighters actually left public safety and went into the military, and we had to call him back from overseas to testify. Uh, They had him transferred back for us. And then... The uh, paramedics from Grady actually quit working at Grady because of that call and chose to go into other occupations. So, yes, I worked a variety from the simplest white-collar crime, forgery, to uh, aggravated assaults, armed robberies, you name it, I worked it. I had no real experience in investigating other than writing the initial police reports, but it all came down to the simple principle of who, what, where, when, why, and how. In the case, as long as you had that information, you could move forward with the prosecution. In in the case of that arson incident, um, 
it, I would imagine that has you sort of crossing over into being somewhat of an arson investigator. And did you work with um, uh, arson investigators who were specifically focused on arson investigators, and you you helped form that team? No, I actually left the expertise to them because they were the ones that were properly trained and had the experience, and we got them to come in and, and show us what kind of investigation they did, you know, what kind of materials were found, you know, as a possible uh, as to how the fire got started. We got them to come in and testify to the jury as to how they did their work and what their results were. So, in, in a sense, uh, they became a part of... Uh um, your investigation, uh, almost the process of discovery where um, you gathered information from them. You weren't uh, working side by side with them, but rather you were relying on their uh, investigation. Exactly. And that was typically how we, we prosecuted the cases. You called in the officers that made the initial reports. You called in the detectives that furthered the investigation. You called in the specialists like the arson investigators in this case. You called in your experts from Georgia Crime Lab, Georgia GBI Crime Lab. Uh, if it was a shooting, it was the ballistic expert. If it was the, a drug case, drugs involved, you called in your chemists or your DNA specialists. Uh, quite, you know, it, quite the list of characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that stands out uh, that might fall into the category of uh, highly unusual or, or, or just flat out weird um, while you were a special investigator? Uh, you know. Or did each. Did, did, were there just a sum total of incidents that all had their weird uh, idiosyncrasies uh, and, and there's no one that stands out uh, as particularly strange? There was there was one there was one homicide case that I worked that stands out particularly and it, and it was really kind of funny because I was looking for a witness. It was a the murder took place as a result of some bullying the night before, where one party pulled a gun on the other party, and the party that had the gun pulled on them came back the set the next day with a shotgun and pursued the first party down the street, and he fired two rounds and struck the victim in the back and my witness actually pulled a second female witness from the line of fire around the corner of a building as he fired the second round and struck the victim in the back which ultimately led to the victim's death and so we knew who she was we knew she was still in the city someplace someplace in the county and I looked high and low for her I probably put out every bit of 25 business cards around the Capitol Avenue area, which is now the Brave Stadium, the old Brave Stadium. And as it happened, I knew who she was, I knew where she worked, couldn't find her, but I put out business cards, I talked to people on the street, and I was at a restaurant on Ponce de Leon called Zesta's with my old partner. And we were sitting there, and I was taking, getting a, a, a cup of Coke from the machine, and to the right of the Coke machine, because it was self-service, and to the right of the Coke machine were these two silver cylinders. One was iced tea, one was ice water. And I was talking to my partner at the time, Don Skelly, and we were discussing my having to find this witness and not having much luck. And I remember him standing there listening to what I was saying, and this lady 
poked her head from behind the steel containers, stainless steel containers, and said, I'll bet it was a shotgun shooting. The victim got shot in the back. And I looked at it because I wasn't giving a whole lot of details because I didn't like to put the case details out there in front of the citizens, civilians. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, why do you ask that question? She says, because I'm the one you've been looking for. Wow. Well, my name is Goldie and I saw what happened and I got your business card and I was getting ready to call you. Uh, And Don looked at me and I looked at Don and I went, okay, let's, let's have a talk. We need you to come in court. And she did. And we wound up getting a conviction. Sounds like it was a, a, a case of being in the right place at the right time. Huh? Um, we're we're going to be taking a break, um, Eric, and when we come back, um, I want to ask you one question related to uh, how it's determined whether or not a city police department or the special invas- investigations uh, unit of the district attorney's office uh, has jurisdiction over a crime, and I'm going to relate it to a current crime uh, here in Atlanta. We'll talk with Eric Sliz more about crime and uh, law enforcement right after this break. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here talking with Eric Sliz, a career law enforcement and criminal justice uh, professional who has really uh, been around the block a couple of times from his uh, early days with uh, the St. Petersburg uh, Small City Police Department to the City of Atlanta Large uh, City Police Department to working with uh, Fulton County, a one of the largest and most populous counties in the southeast, uh, in, and then with the uh, District Attorney's uh, Special Investigations Unit. And uh, Eric, I mentioned that I had a question uh, before we took the break uh, about who has jurisdiction and, and how it's determined whether or not uh, 
in this case, uh, and, and I'm sure it works similarly, although it could work differently from uh, city and, and, and county uh, overlapping districts around the country, but um, the recent incident uh, of, of a couple of homeless people uh, that have been killed here in the city of Atlanta, whenever there is a homicide that takes place in the city, uh, because the city uh, is overlapped by the county, uh, how do they determine whose jurisdiction it is? And are there some situations where it's the city's jurisdiction, but the special investigations uh, unit of the district attorney's office gets involved as well? Uh, The the district attorney's office is more there to, to assist. The philosophy that was in place when I was there was simply we were there to assist. Um, we actually started responding assistant DAs to different crime scenes and uh, also investigators for their protection. And we pretty much left the cities to their own. If it happened in unincorporated Fulton County, then the Fulton County Police had jurisdiction. If it was within the city limits, that city police department, if it was suitably equipped, would handle it. Um, a lot of your smaller jurisdictions <clears throat> would not have experienced investigators to handle certain kinds of crimes, and they might opt to call in the GBI to assist. But primarily the DA's office, um, you know, if there was a resource that they could help provide to help that to help that jurisdiction investigate the crime more thoroughly, yeah, they would certainly certainly step up and and do so. But uh, we were more, uh, our, our aim, our, our position was to help in the eventual prosecution of that crime. And, and, and again, in, in that process, um, Rick, uh, the, the crimes committed in the city of Atlanta, and it's the city of Atlanta's uh, investigations uh, unit that, that, that looks into the nature of the crime, uh, but could you be called in uh, to assist, and and then would you be working side by side, or would you be drawing upon the information supplied by the Atlanta Police Department, much the way you did working with arson investigators um, when you were um, a, a, a special investigations uh, um, uh, officer? D- do do you work as a team in situations like that? Or could oh, you? Certainly. certainly the, the, the aim was never to alienate uh, departments such as the Atlanta Police Department because ultimately they send you the cases that you will take up and eventually prosecute. Did, did it help that you had a background? Uh, you were sort of a, a member of the family, uh, albeit a former member of the family, that you, you maybe worked a little better as a team in situations like that? Oh, Oh, without a doubt. I was able to cultivate um, friendships and relationships uh, in my years with the city and the county that ultimately held me in good stead when I went to the DA's office. Uh, it, it helps when you move up to a position like that to be able to talk cop because you've been there. You know, if you have to get a hold of a morning watch officer, you know not to call them before 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon because chances are they're going to be sleeping. You know to call them at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they've had enough rest and they're willing to talk with you. Um, same thing with uh, dealing with folks on the street. You know, the majority of the crimes that I worked on usually happened at night. So you have your night people. 
people that sleep during the day and, and do their conductor activities at night. So you knew if you needed a witness on a homicide, you'd probably go out at night and, and look for that witness, as I did many times with the assistant DAs. Um, you know, numerous times we went out late at night, one, two, three o'clock in the morning. And up to the point where we actually got rousted by the city of Atlanta a couple of times because they didn't know who we were until they uh, encountered us and put us up against the car. And we were like, you better check the back pockets. You know, don't worry about the gun on my side, but I do have a badge in my back pocket. I'm reaching very slowly. Don't get, you know, don't get crazy. Just like Um, uh, we see on TV where uh, you have um, uh, more than one investigation or uh, law enforcement uh, units uh, uh, arriving on a scene and uh, you know you're thrashing out who has jurisdiction um, after you determine whose identity is uh, is what um, let's uh, I would be remiss if I did not uh, have us talk for just a little bit about uh, uh, insurance fraud in fact we may have to have you come back on the program to focus on insurance fraud but let's touch on it for a moment because that's where you're currently uh, engaged is working in the area uh, of insurance fraud investigations and uh, most Americans are probably not aware that we're that according to the FBI it's a minimum of 40 billion dollars a year uh, which would cost the average U.S. family between $400 and $700 per year uh, in the form of increased premiums outside of health care. And uh, the uh, Coalition Against Insurance Fraud estimates that it's uh, closer to uh, $80 billion per year. So we're talking about a sizable amount of fraud. Um, Tell us about that transition uh, out of uh, the uh, public sector into the private sector. For me, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, You know, all my years on the job as a police officer, I'd seen a lot, done a lot, heard a lot. When I got into this line of work, I realized I hadn't seen much of anything. Uh, Insurance fraud is rampant, and it's, you know, the reasons why people do it, it runs the gamut from making a total living at it to... Well, I just don't have the money. I need extra money just for this one thing. Maybe my child's sick, needs an operation, or the mortgage is overdue. Uh, if I fudge a little bit, like people fudge on their taxes, they get the idea that they might, you know, have a minor accident and try to claim to be injured, and, and just to get a little extra money to pay their bills. Yeah. I thought I'd seen everything, and I realized I hadn't seen it all. And in a sense, would you say this is an area of, of crime that is the most uh, uh, carefully premeditated uh, uh, area of scheming and, and deception? There are folks that actually, I know that they lay awake at night trying to figure out the perfect scheme. Uh, some of the the intelligence we've gotten in the past, you know, things like South Carolina, for example, where um, a person has an accident and goes to the hospital and gets treated and incurs several thousand dollars worth of bills. In South Carolina, the hospital is not allowed by law to put a hospital lien against that bill being paid first, to cause that bill to be paid first. And what that means is if a person goes in and and incurs all these bills, they can go to the insurance company and say, I want to be paid first and I'll take care of the bills later. 
in one of the latest schemes we've uncovered through intelligence is they're not paying the hospitals. So the insurance company is asked to pay the bills, and the hospitals are not getting paid, and the uh, insureds are walking away with the money. And, Rick, tell us a little bit about uh, insurance fraud uh, investigation uh, training or certification. Uh, are, do such programs exist? They do. You, you have several certifications that you can achieve uh, by taking numerous classes, and it touches on um, the legal aspects of fraud investigation for the insurance business and uh, contracts, torts, uh, all kinds of things, uh, tort concepts, tort theories and defenses, um, the laws thing concerning damages and subrogation of claims. Uh, you get a, a uh, FCL, I think it's FCLE, Certified Fraud Examiner, CFE, and you move on to a uh, another uh, certification above that. And it, and it, it, it's from what I've been told, it's an eye-opening experience to take these classes because, once again, like the academy, like a college degree gives you a foundation in principle and theory, then you move into the police academy that actually teaches you the skills. That's what these training classes do is they, they open your eyes. They give you a foundation uh, through which you can do your job more competently. Well, speaking and, of a foundation... Uh, Eric, we have uh, run out of time, and I think we've laid the foundation to have you come back and focus on insurance fraud. Um, uh, I apologize, but I found your background in uh, criminal justice and law enforcement so fascinating that we drilled down, and uh, we have a lot to talk about in terms of uh, uh, fraud and fraud investigation, so we're just going to have to have you come back. But I want to thank you for taking the time to come on to the Business Hour. Well, thank you, Ron, very much for having me. We've been talking with Eric Sliz about a career in law enforcement, criminal justice, and investigations. You've been listening to the Business Hour here at America's Web Radio. We're on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on the radio next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.